On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be joined by one of the great contributors to our industry, Peter Field. His work with Les Binnett really challenged provocation around the effectiveness of marketing, and he made the case based on a lot of empirical research for the effectiveness of long-term brand building versus the allure of short-term. So it's going to be a good one. Join me as I talk marketing effectiveness only this week on Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. Um, And I'm excited about this one because, as I was saying just before we started recording, I've had a lot of big guests on, but I felt there was one missing name, one one of the great contributors to our industry of modern times, um, Peter Field. So welcome. Thank you for joining me today, Peter. How are you? How's things before we start? How are you? Yeah, Dave, thanks for the invite. Uh, love, lovely to be here. Yeah, things are good. Things are very busy. Um, it's that time of the year and after the summer, everyone's kind of getting back to it and trying to pick things up. So, yeah, no, it's good. Lots of interesting projects on some of which I'm sure we'll talk about in the next uh, in the next hour or so. Uh, that's great. I'm glad you're busy. And uh, yeah, we took a little break during the summer with Inside Marketing and... Um, yeah, I enjoyed the rain that we had in Ireland all summer. But anyway, we 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 pick back up. Um, so I'm conscious we have a lot of kind of students and people new to the industry who listen to this. So I mean, I imagine that nearly everybody has read your work at this stage, um, you know, and is familiar with it. But but then again, I am quite amazed sometimes that when I look at. Uh, the amount of work that we have um, and how little, there's no curriculum. One of the things, the problems I have with the industry is that there's no agreed curriculum. We have like between your work included and, and Orlando Wood's work and even um, Byron Sharp's work and not everybody has read these things. So for anybody who maybe uh, will forgive them, maybe new to the industry, studying marketing and stuff like that and who hasn't got around to reading your work yet or isn't familiar with it, may have heard of you but not familiar with it, um, they probably know some of the 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 rules or laws, if you will, that came out of it. Can you just give me a brief overview of the research that you've done in marketing, the methodology, and sure. and and why it's important for business today for our industry? Sure. Okay. Well, thanks very much. That's a pretty good setup. So, the work that I'm most associated with, and, and it's in conjunction with my co-author, Les Binet, um, we've been working really for the last 15, 16 years with a particular database, which is the IPA Effectiveness Database. So this is the data that is collected alongside entries into an Effectiveness Awards competition. Now, I'll come back to the significance of that in a minute. Um, but what we do is we mine that data set, and there's now around 1,200 case studies in there. That's for profit case studies. There's a whole load of ones for charities and government as well that we could look at. Um, We mine those case studies to look for patterns in the data that relates inputs, the decisions we make as marketers, that could be media choices or it could be um, it could be creative routes, it could be strategic and uh, so on. Uh, and we look at the, the relationships between those and the outcomes of the campaign, particularly business effects that we look at very strongly. But also, you know, the impact on the brand, which again, I think increasingly in recent years, people have come to understand is not some kind of piece of fluffy, uh, you know, 20th century thinking. The strength of the brand is absolutely central mm-hmm. to the trading strengths of the business in the months to come, in the months, years to come. So we, we mine it 
for that uh, data. We've, there have been four published um, uh, papers off the back of it. For those out there who, who may be dutiful enough to want to read this, and I do understand why people haven't, many people haven't read any of our work because there is so much uh, kind of published stuff out there. So we started in 2007 with Marketing the Year of Accountability, which was the first of our publications where we kind of set up the kind of way we were going to analyze the data. The one that's got us most on people's radar is the long and the short of it, which was published in 2013. And then the subsequent two, which was media in focus and effectiveness in context, have really been refinements of that. Mm. So media in focus is when we specifically drilled into the impacts of media choices and effectiveness in context was when we looked at how the rules of effectiveness that emerged in the long and the short of it uh, kind of were nuanced. And it mm. did depend on, you know, whether you're a big brand or small brand, which category you were in, new, old, all the rest of it. Mm. So, uh, you know, they've been refinements specifically to address issues that, you know, many critics have, have been have spent the last 10 years pouring on the long and mm. short of it um, because success is a dangerous thing. It, it merely inspires people to want to hack you down. Mm. So there's been a fair amount of that. Um, but, you know, I think the most common criticism, and I'd quite like to open with this really because I think it's quite important, the most common criticism of all of our work, and I've worked not just with the IP effectiveness database, I've worked with its Australian equivalent and its Canadian equivalent, as well as the database that um, uh, can effectiveness lions have collected. And these all, I should say, the findings from all of these effectiveness databases tend to align very, very closely. Mm -hmm. which is a first clue here. But the criticism is nevertheless levelled at all of these. These are not typical marketing campaigns. These are, yeah. these are winners. They've been through some kind of success survivability course. And therefore, um, we might draw dangerous conclusions if mm -hmm. we learn from them. Now, I have a number of responses to that. First of all, where we do compare findings from these with uh, ordinary case studies, and I've done a lot of looking at that, we find they are very aligned with mm -hmm. you know, case findings that are from the normal world of mediocre campaigns. So there is no real strong evidence to suggest that in any way we're misleading people by looking at them. The other advantage we have is because these are case study success, the the level and quality of data that we can collect is beyond anything that ordinary um, data sets can produce. So we're able to look at kind of data and we're able to look at connections between inputs and outputs on a level that, frankly, um, other data sets don't allow. So there's mm -hmm. a big advantage in that. And then finally, and this is the big criticism, really, there is a huge suspicion in the world of academia um, who regard marketing as a science. Mm -hmm. Now, Marketing is not a fully-fledged science, and no one who works in it would ever imagine that. There is some advantage we can gain by using scientific methods to eliminate rookie errors, you know, stupid targeting and so on and so forth. But essentially, the science of marketing can only take you to a level that I would describe as average or perhaps even mediocre. Mm. By its definition, if there is a set of scientific laws, everyone can follow them and everyone can get to that level. And increasingly, of course, that's what's happened. So there is huge value, I would argue, in studying what academics regard as outliers, that is mm. to say, success day studies. Because if you want to rise above the mediocre, the average, you have got to learn 
from these high-flying case studies success. And that's what these kinds of databases, whether it's the IPA, the ACA, or the ICA, or the CANS, any of these papers, they teach you how to rise above the mediocre and do stuff that doesn't necessarily generalize. It is mm. genius. It mm. is brilliant. It's perhaps magic. Um, so you've got to do it. And because being average, being mediocre in the world of marketing in many scenarios is a damn expensive place to be. Mm. Um, yeah. You're just not and uh, you're not going to earn your stripes as a marketer if that's all you're doing. So, you know, that is uh, my kind of view of what we've done, uh, mm-hmm. what our value of our work is to date, and why and how it sits alongside all the other great databases that are out there, including, of course, Ehrenberg Bass, mm-hmm. which, um, uh, you know, has, has its own contribution to make. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, yeah, it is. It's like we desperately want to see marketing as a science um, and despite what people say it isn't it's not a science in terms of the, the purest definition of the word um, now one of the probably I don't know how you feel about this but like you mentioned there, you've there's nuances, and you've got like you you've you four bodies of work now and kind of different iterations, but yet sixty forty is the outtake, right? That's that's the that's the cliff notes. That's that's what everyone jumps to, um, and I don't know. It doesn't matter what what category I've spoken to clients about. They all I don't. This is why I'm saying. I don't know whether people have read the work. It's one of the problems I think with your work that when you when you give a an average of average, when you end at 60-40, that's the bit that people remember and it's the, the salient bit that people say, well, on average it's 60-40. But between, you mentioned profit and non-profit and government and even how big a brand is, what, 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 that, if that's the kind of, the, the, the average of average of averages, what, what are the type of things that influence mm-hmm. that nuance and, and how, how big a variance is there would across different sure. categories, just roughly speaking? Yeah. So for those of you who haven't been dutiful enough to read the long and short of it, the 60-40 rule is about balancing what we need to do for long-term brand building with what we need to do for short-term immediate sales activation. And so the 60-40 rule was an observation that on average across all categories and all brands, what we found was that the sweet spot was when about 60% of the media budget was put behind long-term brand building and 40% behind driving sales now. So some people would describe that as top of funnel versus bottom of funnel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, creating interest and predisposition to a brand at the top of the funnel and at the bottom of the funnel, driving that, you know, uh, click on the website or that picking up the pack in the supermarket, actually making that loss. Um, and they're very different jobs. They work together. They are very, very different. Um, so long term is very much about strengthening the brand, creating those powerful, usually emotional associations that predispose us to want to choose that brand. And sales activation is the nudge that gets us over the line. And just to be clear about this, sales activation, the short, is not simply about um, physical availability. It's much, much more than that. Mm. And I'll give you one example of a kind of sales activation message, which has nothing to do with physical availability or a metaphor for it. And those are seasonal nudges, seasonal prompts. So when we come into Halloween, which is probably the next one coming up, most of us are going to be deluged with kind of Halloween ideas. And these will nudge us perhaps to choose a brand, particularly a retail brand, at this time uh, for something to do with Halloween. But it's thereafter, it's irrelevant and we won't remember it beyond that. And it is a classic short-term sales activation tool. And there may be permissions behind it as well. It doesn't do much to build the brand. So these are very, very different. Um, so 6040 was the average. We found that at one level, 
some situations, particularly I'm thinking of financial services here, we found it was more of an 80-20 rule. Um, uh, In other situations, B2B um, and, for instance, charities, it's more of a 40-60 kind of rule. It's coming Mm -hmm. closer to 40-60. So in those situations, more of your budget should be spent on the short term than the long term. Um, And the principle behind all of this, the principle that governs this um, is that you're trying to achieve achieve some kind of balance between, you know, driving enthusiasm for your brand and exploiting enthusiasm for that brand for immediate sales. And in some situations, it is tough to build that enthusiasm, financial services being a very good example of that. So you need to lean into the tough task. So in financial services, we said up the brand spend. Actually, sales activation can be relatively easy in financial services because of the data that's available to help them target. Um, when it comes to something like charities, it's quite easy to get people switched onto your brand. We all care a lot about these issues, and you can have me, you know, you can have me sobbing about, you know, one cause or another. The challenge comes in getting me to put my hand in my pocket mm. and pull out, pull out some euros or pound notes and contribute. And that's why you have to lean into the activation piece when it comes to, uh, say, um, charities. And with B2B, there's very long purchase funnels, very long consideration processes in mm. B2B. So you tend to have to lean into, you know, moving customers down those funnels. And that's why, again, that is more of a, um, a short kind of uh, skew on that. But we've never, ever claimed, even when we wrote the long and the short, we've never, ever claimed that 60-40 was a one-size-fits-all rule. It was a it was a nice little moniker to summarise what we were talking about. Um, but of course, those who, who were looking for ammunition to criticise us all said, what a preposterous suggestion that mm. ever generalise about this. Goodness me. And of course, we never, we never did. Um, we just had to wait for a few more years before we could look in more detail and uh, and actually, you know, kind of nuance the rule. Mm. But well, I think we've done that in, to a reasonable no. degree. Others uh, may do more to follow. Absolutely. No, no, you have. Um, and, and, within, there's, and there's a lot in, you know, I've heard, I've, I've had the conversation and it's in the same territory for clients long, short term. And, and, and sometimes they talk about, they, they, they use channels. So they say when they're, when they're talking about long and short term, they actually start talking about channels and um, how much it depends on telly versus digital. So it gets misattributed or, or kind of misinterpreted to talk about a channel or then they start talking about, you know, if they get confused and they go, well, um, you know, if there's an offer in the ad, it's short term. If there's no offer in the ad, it's long term. And then like, how would you define, do you think, do you think your work has been misinterpreted or the, the definitions people mm-hmm. hadn't, haven't been fully clear on it? And, and maybe even some of your critics haven't been clear on it. They didn't understand it properly. And how would you define ultimately the longer term and the shorter term in your sure, definition. Sure. Well, the, the critics have said, look, we haven't spelt out quite clearly what a sales activation is. And I kind of get that. But you know what? I prefer to treat the audience of our work as intelligent enough to work this out for themselves, particularly when they're marketers. And it's very difficult to give a complete definition. But in principle, a short-term sales activation is anything that is designed to um, uh, provoke a response right now mm-hmm. um, and is primarily concerned with that and not concerned with uh, later purchasing. So it could be a sale or an offer. It could be something that I've uh, I've already discussed, if some kind of seasonal prompt. It could be just a piece of signposting. It could be that, you know, when I come out of the metro station, there is a McDonald's poster telling me that around the corner mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's some a McDonald's serving something that might make me feel hungry, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. 
you know, that that's a good example of activation is you're, you're never going to remember that poster, I promise you, ever again in your life. But it's done its job there and then just to nudge you around the corner and go and buy a Big Mac or whatever. So, you know, it comes in lots of different guys. You just have to, I'm afraid, use your brain and work it out for yourself. And of course, there are, you know, there are examples of plenty of examples of advertising that tries to do both, you know, mm-hmm. tries to build the brand and activate short-term sales. And I get why lots of people want to do that. And one of the most common questions that Lesbian and I are asked is, you know, why do they have to be different? You know, mm-hmm. why why can't we combine them? I mean, it'd be efficient. And of course, the answer is is quite complex in a way, but but it, but in a sense, it's very simple, which is that, you know, these are very different jobs. They, you know, they they operate over different timescales using different kinds of messages and different kinds of media and, uh, you know, targeted at different kinds of individuals. So it's very difficult to do each of those two jobs effectively mm. if you try and combine them. You end up doing neither very well. You don't build a very strong brand because you've got a sudden great activation message in the middle of it. And you don't activate very well because you've got this, you know, softer brand yeah. building message. So yeah. it is just better. And my advice always to marketers is to be quite clear, separate the two tasks out. They lead you down very, very different strategic and media and creative routes. You need to tie them together with some kind of integrated brand uh, kind of assets. But at the end of the day, um, separate them out. And then it's very easy to be clear what is an activation yeah. message or what is a brand building yeah. message. There is really no ambiguity that anyone need get exercised about, mm. not even if they, you know, even if they do want to have a go at our work. But uh, so, yeah, and, and the other point you made was, but, you know, people have said, well, you know, are Les and Peter talking about TV when they talk about brand building? And are they talking about search when they talk about sales activation? Well, no, we've we've always tried to take a step back from that. I mean, TV is a good example to start with because TV, yeah, it's a brilliant brand building medium still now in, you know, in, in 2023. But also DRTV has mm. always been around. It's a fantastic short-term yeah. response medium. And that's always been the case. It's different, different creative uses, different targeting uses where you've got the tools to target get people mm. you know it can do either most media can work across the divide both. but there tends to be strength one way or the other yeah yeah and um, I, I think and people just weren't like they it, it's used interchangeably and quite often then you get the wrong results because because people a lot of times weren't really clear on what they were talking about and what i kind of move on from that little because the long and short term which kind of leads you into um if emotional versus rational campaigns and, and you've, you've done a lot of work on the effectiveness of emotional versus rational campaigns. So um, what's the distinction between emotional messaging and why does that, and, and does it, and if so, I, I think it does, why does it outperform its rational counterpart more often? What's going on there? Okay. I mean, there's so much evidence now about this. And, um, and I would say there are kind of three ways in which emotions score. Firstly, emotions have a much powerful impact on our decision making, you know, um, and uh, you know, there's tons of neuroscience behind that. If you can get the right emotional associations about a brand, it has a really powerful impact on decision making. And best of all, if we do it well, we tick all those boxes that a brand needs. I mean, you, you, some people will suggest to you that um, building a brand is like a tick box exercise. You've got to create associations with, you know, key category entry points, whether they're, you know, usage modes or, you know, uh, places you might buy it or whatever. Actually, the great thing about really powerful emotional ads is it kind of creates this anyway. You create 
these heuristics in people's minds, my heads that make them associate it with all the good stuff. So it saves you a ton of thinking, a ton of money, and a ton of work when you do it well. So that's the first thing. It's just a much more powerful influence on the decision making. Secondly, um, it's very durable. Emotional associations are remembered much, much longer than our, our facts and information. So it works powerfully as a long-term brand tool, much better than anything we can do through facts and information. And then there's a third issue, which is very much coming to the fore now, which is its role in attention. Um, so you listen to the work, read, read the work of both Karen Nelson Field and Orlando Wood at mm -hmm. System System One. Orlando looking very much at the creative, uh, the ability of creative approaches to gather our attention, um, all, and Karen Nelson Field at the media side mm -hmm. of that as well. Attention, we now know, is, of course, vital to the effectiveness and efficiency of campaigns. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer, really, as I can't mm -hmm. imagine anyone would ever think otherwise. But we've now got some hard you know, kind of data to prove that. And what we're learning, of course, is that emotional associations, emotional campaigns are just much more attention-grabbing. You know, we, we, you know we, we like to look at them. We enjoy them. We pass them along more mm. so they get all sorts of benefits. And I'm just in the middle, a brand new project here, just in the middle of a project with a good friend of mine um, uh, uh, from Eat Big Fish, Adam Morgan, who founder of Eat oh, Big yeah. Fish, yeah. and System One, uh, the, the crew at System One, including Orlando, um, on the cost of dull. It's a great oh, project. Right. Um, um, Adam Morgan's idea. So what we're looking at here is when you go down the dull route, and one way of defining dull is by going down the non-emotive tick box, facts and figures kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When you go down the way, I'm not saying it can't work, I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's just goddamn inefficient. Mm. Um, and so we're trying to put a cost on exactly what it is. When you go down the dull route, what is the cost of leveling the playing field with a campaign that takes a real high-end emotional stimulating route. And the numbers are eye-watering. I mean, right. these are big sums of money. So it's for an average brand in an average situation, it's over nine million pounds per annum in UK terms. So, right. you know, right. if you imagine that in the US market or across Europe, these are big, big, we're talking billions of, mm. of dollars globally that's that's kind of being wasted with dull advertising. Um, uh, and you know, it, it data is pretty strong on all this. We're looking now, this is stage one of the project. We're going to big this up. We're going to work it out, globalize the findings. It's um, going to be a book big, or is big, it going big, to be, how's it, how, how are you going oh, to? Oh gosh, don't know. We only just started work oh, on that. Right. It'll, certainly be a, it'll certainly be some kind of road show. Well, I'll, get you, sure I'll get you back. I'll get, I'll get the three years on now. I'll get the three years on now when, when you're ready to come on and talk about that. Well, sounds I, really interesting. Yeah. I want us to do, I want us to do dull conferences. I want, I want people to come along to learn how, how to be dull. Absolutely. We spend our lives going to conferences where they've done their utmost to make it exciting with sexy music and yeah. great. Well, I like to think I like to think that was the opposite. I like to think this podcast is one of the dullest podcasts around about marketing. <laughs> so I, I think I think um, yeah, we, we've 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 achieved something here today. Um, I'm just going to ask you another question. That sounds super interesting. I can't wait to to hear about that. And, and I'm going to get on. To, I've, I've so many things I want to ask you. But like the first thing I want to ask you is like like marketing versus media. So. Um, Let's say 60-40, right? It doesn't matter for your category. Say for your category, it's 60-40. Um, should, is that just applying to media investment or do you need to factor in creative, cost of creative, or even like a client may be spending a ton of money. Like they might take a chunk of money that was media and move it into uh, retail media, give it Tesco, shelf display. Like should it be the 60-40 be 
considered in a broader context of your marketing budget as opposed to just your media? Um, or, yeah. or how do you see no, that? Well, I, I think the answer is yes. And I wish I, I wish I was able to follow up that question with a, with a full answer. The data set that I've been working with, um, the, the UK one anyway, reports media spend, not creative spend. Now, not all effectiveness competition, the Australian one, for instance, does collect data on, on creative spend. And maybe in years to come, using perhaps the Australian data, we might, might be able to learn more about that. And I think there will be an equivalent kind of ratio in terms of what we should be spending on creative and media. There might be a whole new kind of, it won't be 60-40, it'll mm. be something like, you know, 90-10 media creative mm. or whatever. It'll be something like that, won't it? But um, there probably, you know, one day there probably will be uh, a flexible rule, nuanced rule that will guide people in terms of how they should how they should divide that up but the, the my far findings on the sort of 60 40 rule are very much about media, media spend but i certainly think it is a false economy to uh over i mean you know we, we come across this expression in uh media circles it's very much driven by accountants of working money a working budget yeah. working spend and the implication is that that is media spend, not creative spend. And yeah. that is so, so misguided. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that argues that any old dross, you know, as long as we spend enough working media money behind it, it's going to be effective. And I've already said to you that's just not true. We know that there is an order of magnitude, and I am not exaggerating, a tenfold increase between the efficiency of highly creative, creative work and the opposite end, you know, mm. the, the, the creative stuff. So, you know, by spending probably more money, that creativity, creativity isn't always expensive. Let's nail that myth. Great creative ideas don't necessarily cost money mm. um, to to come up with or develop. No, they don't cost much um, more than bad ones, for example, yeah? Not you know? necessarily. No. no, indeed not. I mean, there's an assumption they're going to be expensive, but they're not always. The most powerful creative ideas, you can often execute brilliantly cheap. I mean, take, there's a new poster site um, that's been a little bit celebrated in the UK now for Specsavers. You probably know the Specsavers yeah, campaign. Yeah. The great creative idea, and it's been awarded over the years, is that if you don't get your eyes tested by these guys, you're going to make some dumb mistakes. So this is a terribly simple bus shelter poster so it's just should have gone to spec savers their corporate line but it's posted upside yeah, down yeah I saw, right. yeah now, how expensive is that mm. it isn't it's really well, cheap it, you know um it's a great example the value of investing you know effort in creativity yeah um, it's also a great example of which we'll touch on later on sticking with an idea right sticking with now it is a great idea and it it, it, it probably it will probably never run out of executions and uh, it's like i i know the one i saw recently was it was in ireland actually and there was a big festival on i'm going to say it was electric picnic and they had a big post saying "Welcome to Longitude." So they had the wrong, you know, the wrong festival on it. And it, it, it was just really simple, really clever. Again, used on outdoor. It, it, it's a great example of don't change it for the sake of changing it. Stick with a great idea. It, it has yeah. built that equity over time, and 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 that truly is the long term. When you think about brand investment in a brand, not change it too quickly. But I'm going to get in that in a second. I just want to ask you. Um, so. There's, the work that you've done is based on data, right? It, it, there's lots of empirical evidence, a huge amount of data sets in there, right? So it's not an opinion. It's not like you just said, well, I think or whatever, in my, in my opinion. It is, but despite the evidence, I still get asked an awful lot of, I get asked a question 
a lot of times. So yeah, what I should invest in brand. And you know, what I hear sometimes, which is completely illogical is, look, I know um, all the evidence, all the research, all the books, everything in the world. But I sometimes say, yeah, but, but my brand category, whatever is slightly different. The rules don't apply. And I remember saying to him the other day, if it, or a couple of weeks ago, if it doesn't work, they said, what if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work? And I said, well, if it doesn't work, we will have an amazing case study because it'll be the first time in the history of marketing that investing in brand, it did not pay off as long as it's good creative. So um, why do you think the debate still goes on today about the long term? And why do we still have to convince people despite all the evidence that we have? Yeah, well, I mean, everyone thinks that their their brand might be an exception. I've not found any. So just to reiterate what you just said, we've looked through this data and the rules are very consistent um, across categories, across scenarios. There are some nuanced exceptions where you can slightly, and I think that this is really, really leading me to the, to the answer to your question. The standard pushback is, you know, but what about all these brands? You know, Uber, what about, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, all of these big, tech brands that are out there, um, Elon Musk's various ventures, they all they yeah. all were great successes without spending a, a dollar on advertising. Mm-hmm. So surely that disproves it. And in fact, you know, our data looks at this and does examine it. And what we what we've identified is that when you've got a startup, and particularly if it's a very innovative startup, it is true to say that you can get away without um, uh, spending money on brand building. If you, you know, if you invest in performance marketing, of course, this has been the big tool for most startups. Um, you know, they it's very seductive because there's 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 you can scale it as you want. You start out with, you know, uh, a few thousand euros for your first you know first month or so, and you get some business off that, and you scale it up. So you can scale it easily as you build. There's no requirement for a big one-off bang investment in building your brand. So it's very seductive. It's a great route for startups and I'm not criticizing Mm -hmm. it for a moment. But there comes a point with all startups where they reach a scale, or reach a size when the growth dries up and Mm -hmm. when performance marketing on its own, unaided, by uh, brand building just starts to become prohibitively expensive. And we've there are plenty of case studies of this. Uh, the, the Gusto case study is a lovely one. Maybe talk about that in just a sec. There, there is an inflection point where the growth will, will start to dry up if you don't start investing in the brand. And so, you know, we, we found Amazon, you know, the world's biggest advertiser, Jeff Bezos, when he started that company, regarded advertising as a kind of loser's, loser's yeah. tool. Um, you know, Elon Musk, ditto. He's now yeah. beginning to think about advertising. And discounting they, as well. He is. And, and yeah. oh, bloody hell, absolutely. You know, all of these things. That, yeah. <laughs> so there comes a point in all brands, it doesn't matter how stellar, how fantastically successful they are. Once the comp- competition starts to level the playing field and you simply don't have, if you like, the virality of your innovation anymore because it's kind of been parried. Mm. Um, in the case of Elon Musk, the big German companies are piling in their, um, you know, VW. Is already, you know, kind of outselling in volume, and the Chinese are, are you know, are in grave danger of eating his lunch. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, there comes a point when you've just got to start investing in the brand, and you know, it's not good enough just to say, well, the brand is Elon. I mean, Elon's mm-hmm. quite polarizing, isn't he? I think. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to you've got to build something that you can commercially exploit properly, and that's what these brands find. But it has led a whole bunch of particularly young 
young digital era marketers, digital native marketers, to imagine that somehow the whole notion of brand is, you know, is is 20th century, not 21st century. This idea of the 21st century brand somehow not needing that. It can be built on experience and virality. Mm. Yeah, there are some big flaws in all of that thinking. At the end of the day, you've got to build your brand. And that's mm. that's the end of it. No brand no sustainable business it's as simple as that yeah i totally I, I totally agree because it was um it, it was quite attractive as a proposition though you know that the, the prime dollar shave club or whatever the idea that you could do to see and you could just you know make a video and talk about here and, and it's fine because there's a novelty value in that and it takes off like wildfire but then if you want to if you want to sell lots of markets you want to and you want to grow yeah. whether it's mattresses as well casper well, or si- all these companies yeah. that were d2c well, they, they eventually they, go on tv if they want to grow no, I mean, the Gusta case studies I mentioned earlier is a brilliant example of that. So when they launched in the UK, and this is D2C, you know, you Gusta, it's menu ideas, and then you can, they will, they will deliver all the ingredients you need to make you make the dish that you've chosen. So a D2C says you're going to the shop, says you're thinking about recipes and all the rest of it. Uh, I mean, when they launched in the UK, they were number two. They built their business on very efficient use of performance marketing, but they hit the inflection point mm. and wisely decided to pivot strongly to brand, invested in Yes, TV, shock horror, and lots of other, you know, non-performance uh, kind of media, and you know, it it it, it transformed their growth again. It mm-hmm. gave them that next um, next spurt of growth, and for a while they were neck and neck with the brand leader. But what forced that decision was instead of being the number two in the brand of two, they were kind of a faltering number two of about eleven, I right. think. So everyone piles in, and this is what happens. And when yeah. that happens you better start thinking about your brand otherwise yeah. you're going to fail. Yeah. No, I think that's the point that's always lost because yes, the but these brands were disruptors at a moment in time. They they were they were new, there was nothing like them and then and then there's they just get copied and then that difference has to be brand until you unless you keep coming out with with new innovations. I do see the allure now of short term for a marketer right because well, obviously because you can measure it, right? And you can see I do A and B happens and and that's quite an attractive thing, and and I think once you get into, I mean, Ritz and everybody talks about this. Once you once you get hooked on measuring the short term, because there is plenty to measure, um, it's hard to get yourself off that. Right? It is hard to look. It. it, it what is your definition though when you think about? Because what people say to me is, "All right, well, when will it pay off? Right? What, how long? When will I start to pay off? I don't like because you got to give me some time frame. And Mark Ritson says, look, the, the long term isn't the stitching together of loads of short term horizons. It's not. It's, it's not quite as simple as that. But when will it pay off? If I invest in brand today, when can I expect to see a return? Um, ne- never mind how can I measure it. We touched on that in a minute. But what? what when does the long term pay off in your view? Define that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there there. There clearly is some variability in all of this, and I usually advise um, clients that I work with not to imagine you can reliably start to measure payback within a period of a year. So what we do know is that, for instance, with TV advertising, there's been, been a lot of modelling done on that, that only about 50% of the payback comes in the first year after the campaign launches. So the remaining you know, 45% comes through in year two, I think, mm. and 5% in year three. So you know, you, we are talking relatively long term and certainly um you know if you're looking to define long term it's got to be more than six months that's the cusp in our data what we see is that long-term effects of advertising tend to take over from short term after about six months but that's not to say you won't see some immediate benefits Mm. you know if you if you invest in brand you will see 
very, very rapidly um, some impacts from that. It will drive short-term sales itself, just not as powerfully as performance marketing or perhaps as efficiently as performance mm. approaches. But what it will also start to do probably, you know, around about six months onwards, is it'll start to turbocharge all the short-term stuff yeah. that you do because, you know, and it may, may do, I mean, really, really effective campaigns can work much quicker than that they can transform a brand's trading almost overnight those kind of brands those kind of campaigns that capture people's imagination but they're rare mm. um, so you know i i would say don't expect to be able to measure and define your return within a year um, and you know mm. the longer you give it the better and of course that's a long term you've mm. got to you know, you've got to you've got to have some confidence in your success of your campaign in the meantime which mm. is why i think uh testing techniques like the system one who, who i've worked a lot with over the years are, are, are good they will give you some confidence that your campaign will or will not drive long-term effects you know mm. and it's a it's a good validated kind of approach you need to look for those kinds of um confidence building measures in the meantime but you can't actually measure it no. you know within, within weeks or months and of course this has been a big problem for effectiveness measurement over the last few years everyone you know measures roi but they measure it over a period of days or weeks or months and that is a total nonsense it's yeah. completely idiotic. it's far more dangerous than not measuring return on investment at all um because it teaches you to do the wrong stuff the way mm. to max short-term ROI is to cut your budget and invest it all in short-term, mm. uh, you know, kind of response generating stuff. And that, you know, that will kill your brand in the long term. So yeah. it's, it's, it's totally, uh, potentially suicidal. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's the same as, um, the same argument to saying, well, I'll just do a, a, a discount in Tesco or Dunn's stores, you know, so we'll just do 50% off next week. And yeah, you will sell more. Of course you will sell more, but then you may impact potential buyers down the road when you're not. And if you do it too long, people say, well, I'm not buying it at full price ever now. So it's the same argument, just looks like kind of different channel. Um, I want to talk about, because the short term, it, it is quite attractive. I think with this fundamental flaws in terms of the, the culture of marketing and, and say, take the tenure of a CEO or a marketing manager, right? So we we are, we're set up, like in terms of long term, an agency contract in media, three years you might get, a new marketing manager comes in, it's out to pitch. Um, if you're a marketing manager, you're you're probably bonused and rewarded, even agency performance-related payments, they're all paid in yearly cycles, annual cycles, right? So it is not set up to reward long-term thinking, right? Because if I'm in, in a marketing, if I'm if I'm a marketing manager in any brand, I, I do stuff today. I get a return in, in a month or two. I'll be bonused on that, right? I, I don't want to do something now that might I could move on somewhere else. I, probably I will, and I don't want to do something now that will benefit my successor, unless mm. everyone's doing that, right? So there is this kind of. Um, we, as much as we talk about it as an industry, we we bonus reward and celebrate everything on short term horizons. How big a problem is that? Because it seems we will never we'll never get out of that kind of vicious circle unless we we can encourage people to be rewarded in the in the medium even term. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it is potentially a problem. I mean, I've never met any marketer cynical enough to completely play that game. But um, I think, you know, mostly they're, you know, they're well-intentioned and, and want to do good by by the brand. Some may be misled into thinking that building the brand is is a waste of money. And certainly one does come across marketers who withdraw marketing investment in the brand. But then I think it's because they just, you know, they bought into these kind of short-term models. You know, I think, I think, 
It is it is potentially a problem, but most smart marketers realise that even if you're only going to be in the job for a year, there is still um, a sense in investing in the brand because it will it will it will mean your performance at the end of that year is certainly better mm. than it would otherwise have been. But I would I've always argued when asked this kind of question for. Um, uh, an additional kind of incentivization for marketers that marketers should be should be remunerated on the basis of what they've done to the brand. So what were mm. the brand metrics telling us at the beginning of the year? What were the brand metrics telling us at the end of the year? Mm. Um, and if we've moved in the right direction and still managed to achieve our business results, so I wouldn't do away with the yeah. annual business, but you need to counterbalance it with something that says, yes, but was it done at the cost of essentially raping the brand, yeah. you know, which, is, which is what one way of doing it. So I think if you have those two metrics in place, you know, business performance and brand strength i think you could do an awful lot to 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 counteract mm, that yeah. um I, I don't know i don't know how many companies do that i'm sure some do but um i think there should be more of that around yeah it, it would be great um i don't know it just depends on it, it just, it's hard because marketing i think increasingly the, the C, ceos of business or finance backgrounds not marketing backgrounds and it's one of the things that they don't um and maybe it's i'm being unfair to the to the the, the the finance person here was stereotyping them, but like and maybe it's marketers' fault for not being able to explain and and hold a seat at that table, the top table in boardrooms. Um, well, do you think just on the topic of change? Do you think that we talked about Specsavers here, and we talked about great campaigns that that have that have um, it takes a while for to build brand and to build those associations, and and I see quite a lot of change happening. I was talking to Heineken a while ago, and they've had it. They've been consistent in terms of their message. You don't chop and change all the time, um, and it's a successful brand. Do you think that clients change? Well, agencies maybe too much, but certainly creative route. New marketing manager comes in. I'm going to change that campaign. I'm going to change everything. Do you think it's a mistake to change that often? Um, should we stick with things a bit longer, do you think, for them to work? Well, certainly. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't help to change, uh, change the campaign. I mean, the, the, I've always felt that the real art of brilliant campaign management is to have an idea and to have an understanding of that idea that permits endless innovation um, to refresh and surprise the consumer, but anchors it in something that is absolutely consistent over time. And I think that's the beauty of spec savers and should have gone to spec savers. And this isn't just about, you know, visual assets. It's not just about the frigging logo and mm. the end line. It's about the essential idea. It's the campaign idea. It's the humor inherent within it. And as you pointed out earlier, Dave, it's, it should have gone to spec savers. It's an endless idea. Mm. We, you know, you can you can you can execute to that brand strategy. Mm. You know, for years and years and years, and that's what brilliant campaign management is all about. So it's certainly true. That I think that marketers in general get bored with their ads long before consumers do, yeah. and there's very little evidence of any ads that ever wear out these days. It might have been a problem 40 years ago, um, but it sure as hell isn't a problem yeah. now because no one can afford to air their ads that many times yeah, exactly. that they actually wear out. So um, you know, uh, but nevertheless, there is a there is a tension between. Mm the commercial benefits of consistency which is you know kind of not reinventing the brand every time you develop a new ad so some consistent assets and consistent approach but also the huge benefits of surprising the consumer and we know that the mm. most effective ads out there are the ones that get people talking about them and they mm. do that through surprise mm. but of course 
really to do that well, it's got to be surprised within a framework that is clearly and strongly rooted in your brand and associated mm. with it, just like you know, Specsavers. Yeah, exactly. Because Spe- Specsavers is a great example because it, it's the familiar, you, you, it's posted upside down, you know, it, it clearly it jars with your brain for a second and then the, the message pays off for whatever they've, they've made an error here and there. Apart from just being funny ads, it, it works in that level because it, it surprises you, but yet it's it's the execution is slightly from is slightly surprising but the the idea is familiar um creative is, is a, a really like investment obviously investment you need to invest in your brand over time but um and media investment is really important but um significant investment really bad creative and you kind of talked about this to start of what you're working on the, the 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 kind of the cost of dull how do you model for creative impact and do you do you model for creative impact in any of your work and how do you go about modeling for that what's the what's the value of creative or maybe is this what you'll have to come back yeah. and talk about at some point I mean, it is a good question because we probably i mean i do from time to time kind of build it in i mean usually it's when i'm doing an evaluation and if i'm concerned that um one sample say within an evaluation is much more creative than the other i'll look at it but generally speaking that's not the case so i don't actually build it into an awful lot of modeling but you're right in a sense that one should do one should take account of it and i think this is going to become quite important um, in the years to come with all the work that's going on on attention measurements. So if you look at the work of Karen Nelson-Field and her company Amplified Intelligence in, in Australia, increasingly global company, or Lumen in the UK, where they're measuring people's attention levels to ads, um, often these are, these are digital ads viewed on mobile devices or whatever. Um, so they're measuring how long we are looking at that ad, whether you know whether it's you know, close attention or not. Um, now that is going to be a result of two things: the wisdom of the media choice, and Karen Elsafield has opened our eyes to this. She talks mm-hmm. about the attention elasticity of platforms. So she teaches us that some digital platforms, um, and YouTube would be a good example of this, have quite good attention elasticities. You know, we can keep people watching a video ad on YouTube for uh, a much longer period of time than we could on some other platforms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, Facebook news feeds would be perhaps one example of more towards the other end of the spectrum where people's attention spans are very short. So she has taught us that the platform sets the limits on which um, anyone will spend any time watching our ad. And if we're on the wrong platform, you can forget trying to build a brand because you won't even get two seconds, two and a half seconds of attention, which her work teaches us is the entry point Mm. for brand building. But, But assuming we've listened to her and once we've chosen our media platforms wisely for the audience concerned um, and that they do allow for a decent attention levels, then it's going to be creative that takes over. And so, you know, if we start to measure attention as a kind of currency in some way, then you are going to have to build in some kind of modeling factor for the creative part of that. Because, you know, the media choice will get you to, to set the parameters and then the creative approach will teach us whether we're going to operate at the top end of those parameters or at the bottom end. So I think creative modeling is going to become more and more important when it comes to the assessment Mm. of campaigns and uh, the the assessment of, you know, kind of media buying as well. So yeah, yeah, Mm. no, good question. Um, And I should have done more over the years than I have, but um, 
uh, so yeah, mea culpa. Um, well, it's thing. it's what you, you can you can get cracking on that now. You can start it. It's not an easy one. Um, like there has well, been the cost of jail is going to be part. Yeah, of exactly. We're saying so you're already on it. To, so we're going to try and cost out various levels yeah. of dull. So yeah. that everybody knows that if you're level three dull, you're just going to have to find a bucket load more euros if you want to marry yeah. your to match your key competitor who might be at level five, for instance, which is going to be much more exciting. Oh, and I think yeah, I think you're right because because media spend was somewhat in the public domain. Like Nielsen tracked it, you can see it very easy. It's very transparent. You can look at competitors. It's hard to know what a, what a creative idea costs in terms of what. What's the true cost of it? How much the agency was paid? It's not in the public domain. Well, I, I'm digressing a little bit. I, I, I was amazed. Like media is is so so accountable and driven by procurement, and yet I did. I worked with a. We don't work them anymore, but I worked with an alcohol brand, and I was absolutely staggered when I spoke to one of the procurement guys about the money they spend on point of sale, like signage in pubs, glassware, right, and all this money is literally spent with zero accountability. Like Guinness rolled out new glassware a, a couple of years ago and it bombed. They had to bring the old one back in. They wasted millions, hundreds of millions of this. And yet it's completely... So uh, the, the, the amount of energy and kind of time spent measuring media and plotting for that. And yet like they, they spent far, far much more money on other channels uh, throughout the world that's just... Well, not maybe maybe not far more. Yeah. But like they spend so much money in point to sale and do, doing things at pubs without any accountability. Well, do you think, well, do you think we're just measuring that, too much media, but yeah. not measuring other things? Well, sometimes that might probably comes out of a different budget. It probably comes out of some kind of trade budget. It may be it may be driven by relationships with you know retailers, suppliers, distributors, and it it may be it may in some instances be unfair to criticise it. I mean, the company may well have done it because they had to rather than because they wanted to. But mm. even so, you know, if you're going to execute, do it well. I agree. Um, I suspect it's just not scrutinised because it's not the same budget and it's not yeah. done by the same same kind of teams. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I think a lot of stuff is done at point of sale or in uh, in certain in you know, cons- cons- you know consumption environments mm. because it is regarded as as a different kind it of comes from um, a different part. There's yeah. a lot lot written, spoken all the time yeah. about you know experience and customer experience and all of that. And of course, it is important. But if you if you get over seduced by the importance of these things and you start chucking silly money at them, and of course, customer experience is important, but it's probably been overhyped in certain situations. And, mm. you know, so I could imagine how a, a drinks company might say, well, this is all part of the experience of drinking our brand. We have to differentiate it in the consumption environment. And that's what these amazing new glasses will do. Um, and, you know, perhaps to some extent that is worth doing but if but to a limited extent and only if you execute well yeah usual rules usual rules true true um there's a huge there's been a huge surge in number of things and tools and platforms that we can use to measure the effectiveness of marketing spend and return on investment so um if you were advising a client now and they say how do i go about measuring things what should i measure how do i go about it what's wise and sensible to measure and um how do i measure what matters what advice would you give people well, the first thing is I would make any measure I use um, to ensure that it's not short term. It doesn't get askew us to the short term. So, you know, um, it's got we've got to find a set of metrics that balance the long and the short of it. I'm not arguing for all one or all the other, but they've got to be balanced. So, if we are measuring ROI, first of all, let's make sure it is a business-like measure of return on investment. Um, and there are some risible, I mean, frankly 
pathetic measures of ROI that you will come across around the world. You know, the number of likes or the <laughs> level of engagement. I mean, as if engagement metrics had any um, reliable um, uh, sense behind them. So there are some truly uh, half-assed kind of measures of ROI out there anyway. It has to be a business-like one. It has to be a, a financial measure of the profit return we get on the investment that we make in that campaign. But having said that, it's got to be measured over a sensible period of time, by which I would argue a year as a bare minimum. Otherwise, you know, it's going to prejudice us to short-term tactics as opposed to long-term sustainable growth drivers. Um, but then, you know, because I'm arguing for long-term, coming back to the point we mentioned earlier, you've got to have metrics that are leading indicators in there as well. And these are where the brand metrics come in. They've got to be chosen well. They've got to relate to the performance of the brand. So they will be those emotional associations and perhaps category entry points Point associations that we know will tend to relate to um, uh, the growth of the brand over the mid to long term. So those are good leading indicators. And if we're strengthening all of those um, in one way or another, then that should provide the reassurance that we're, you know, that we're making the right journey. Mm-hmm. So, you know, baskets of metrics, I've always argued for this, the more the merrier, but understand how they work together and ensure that both the long and the short are, are ticked mm-hmm. off. There's no shortage of short-term metrics. I'm not, I'm not even going to mm-hmm. mention that, They're, you know, <laughs> They are there in their squillions, so mm. we all know what they are, um, and uh, and it's much easier to measure short term, as you've already said. And they can be measured daily and hourly, and you yeah. can spend yeah. your life changing yeah. and reacting to things. Um, you know that you yep. do it all day, every day. Um, ba- based on maybe it's just the things you're working on. I'm not gonna, last question won't keep you much longer. Um, what, what where do you see? marketing effectiveness the, the, the future where do you see it going in the future do you see a change based on any trends or or you know are there any things a brand should be considering now what what does the medium term future look like for marketing effectiveness well i think there are some interesting issues flying around at the moment um firstly the issue of, of trust um you know we've talked about um, the strength of brands. And I think a growing factor in the strength of a brand is people's trust in it. We live in a world mm. where people are very mistrustful of what they see and read and hear. Um, and so there is a big issue about do I trust the brand and do I trust its advertising? And that is only going to get worse. You know, yeah. I think this is one of the many, many, many unfortunate consequences I anticipate of artificial intelligence is going to be increasing um, difficulty of telling what's real advertising from not. Frankly, Mm. so I think we're entering into choppy waters because of that. But building trust in the brand is of growing importance, and we know that some media are good at building trust. Generally, they are the legacy media, though not always. TV's always been good at that. Um, News media, particularly good. Radio is good at building trust, um, and Mm. so on. Um, Search as a as a as a as a channel, it can be quite good at building trust. What we know are the real those media that are least associated with building trust and uh, are, are things social social media social yeah. media and, and you don't need me to tell you why that might be the case so i think there are growing media implications of the need to build trust it's not simply about building getting eyeballs building mm. reach reach increasingly is a, an unqualified um, metric we need quality reach we need attentive reach mm. and we need 
reach in the kinds of environments that create the right associations with our brand. So, you know, I don't buy this uh, thing. This is it's only about salience. Salience mm. is a complex thing. It's not just about, do I remember the name? But it's, do I remember, do I associate the name with the virtues that I seek in that category? Mm. And trust has really risen in importance in the data I work with. One of the benefits of the data set I work with is it's long. It goes back many years. And I can see in that how trust was once the least important of the brand metrics right. that, um, that I have for driving profitability. And it's now number two. Right. So it's it's really risen up. So this, I think, needs to be factored in in our choice of media and our choice of strategies and in our objectives in brands. And of course, you know, that is going to play a factor in media choices. It is going to be affected, I think, by artificial intelligence. So, you know, am, am I as, as excited by AI as everyone else? Well, no, I think it's, I'm most excited about AI when it comes to its potential to unlock new insights and new mm. strategic Communities. The, the ability of AI to mine the overwhelming, you know, drowning tidal mm. wave of data we all live in the moment makes yeah. sense. I think that's a great use of it. Do I look forward to its contribution to creative output and, um, you know, all that? Hell no. no Hell no. no. Um, but I think as an insight generator, I think it could be really exciting and really interesting. Um, other things, you know, we got interesting new um, channel developments. I think what um, TikTok has done has has been very positive for, you know, social media, getting them to think think about it in different ways. So I think that's re-energizing social media and encouraging uh, Meta, particularly, I think, to sharpen its act in terms of mm -hmm. uh, consumers' relationship with it. Um, so yeah, there's there's all sorts of exciting developments about there. But at the end of the day, the big challenge for digital media is all around attention elasticity. So let's keep looking at Karen Nelson Fields metrics and see what we are successfully doing mm. to attention elasticity on digital platforms. Because to date, many of them have been frankly commercially pretty much useless when it comes to brand building because if I'm only going to get typically one second of someone's attention on my on my um, uh, platform newsfeed mm. platform no one is going to build a brand in a second they may well be able to use it as a short-term platform mm. short-term activation but it's never going to play a strong role in long term and that's that's what her data teaches us so I think that's the the big issue I'm looking I'm looking for you know new technologies and new thinking, new algorithms, new AI, mm. whatever it is, is to improve the attention elasticity mm. of digital platforms. And then I will then I will be much more enthusiastic about them mm. than I have been to date, I think. Yeah, guys, it, 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 it feels like, and maybe I'm just naive, but it feels like it's quite an exciting time to be back in media because um, I think a lot of the innovation before came in, in, in technology and um programmatic and automation and stuff like that and it was just low low quality low cost of entry and actually the joke I was making before and it's just said media agencies for a while were priding themselves on avoiding people you know the point of I mean, media agencies about reach as many people as you can for as little budget and then it, be, it became the science of avoidance and um, where you could just say we're only going to let these 17 people see the ad and nobody else and became one-to-one -one and, and completely 
lost the run of itself. And like Brian Sharp, Professor Sharp did a did a great service in marketing by by correcting that. So he's overcorrected to a degree. So it feels like it's quite exciting to be um quality of of impressions and quality of in, in, engagements with people matters more. Uh, attention is really important. And I'd love to see us move to some kind of attention metric and an attention economy, if you will, in media. It's quite the good old fashioned role of a planner um might might become more important again. So Listen, Peter, it's been, uh, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's flown by. Well, it's flown by for me. I'm not sure if it's flown by for you or not. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a long struggle for you. But yeah, it's been a great chat. I really, I, enjoyed, I really, it, really enjoyed it. And I say, I've, because I've, I, I, I wanted to, I've, I've read your, I've read your, your work and, um, yeah, it's just great. It's great to have it. And I, I've, and I mean this to everyone listening. I mean, there's such a body of work, whether, whether it's your work or Orlando Woods' work, it's just a great. It's a great time to be in marketing, and I just think we we owe um, the contributors. You know, we, we we owe it to ourselves to read it because you know I just I, I'd love to see a curriculum that was agreed, um, university agreed by, outside of universities and stuff like that. Of, of good hard evidence and white papers and or yours and Orlando's are the two that really come to mind so um, well, well yeah. amen to that amen to that so I've enjoyed it I will keep you no longer um, I have thoroughly enjoyed that so thank you so much for taking the time and I'll probably speak to you again I'll, I'll get the Holy Trinity yourself Adam and Orlando on to talk about your, your cost of dough when that comes back and um, when you have something to talk about in that one I'd love to hear from you so listen thank you so much for taking the time today thanks Dave cheers have a good day talk to you later so, yeah, I've gone over time again, but thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. I've really enjoyed that. And thank you to Kira in Marketing and Andrea in Sound. And thanks, as always, to our partners in Higher Size Media Solution who helped make it all possible. If you liked that episode, if you enjoyed it or just liked it even a little bit, why not listen back to our back catalogue of evergreen episodes? You'll find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. So that's it. That's Inside Marketing. If you don't know, now you know. Marketing effectiveness. It's about the blend of the long and the short term. So yeah, I, I advise you to read up on Peter's great work if you haven't done so. Read Orlando Wood's book if you haven't done so. We live in interesting times and there's a lot of great work published. So thanks for listening and until next time, thanks. The Inside Marketing Podcast brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. 